If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. Oh, daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Here ends the reading from our tradition, including the parts we usually leave out. God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. As I mentioned when we started this series a few weeks ago, the inspiration for our theological interest in crying came from Reverend Benjamin Perry. You'll remember that he opens his book, Cry Baby, with the line, I can't remember when I stopped crying. I never woke and decided, no tears for me. There was no pivotal moment, no traumatic incident in which I wept openly, was gruesomely mocked, and swore off tears forever. Yet by my early 20s, as surely as if I had cauterized my dear tucks, tear ducts, I hadn't wept in years. We noted in that first sermon, too, that our attitude towards tears and crying come from the messaging we receive about them early on. And the too long didn't read version of that is that crying 
is bad. It exposes instability. It makes people uncomfortable. Definitely do not do it in public. It indicates weakness. Definitely don't cry if you're a boy because you're a boy. And definitely don't cry if you're a girl because it's proof you're too emotional to lead. Again, avoid crying at all costs. What Reverend Perry would eventually realize as he learned to cry again and significant today as we celebrate pride, was that part of the reason he stopped crying in the first place was his own internalized homophobia. He writes, at the same time that I realized the other boys in my class belittled those who cried, I was also realizing that I found some of them attractive. Like many queer kids, I was stuck between my own burgeoning sexuality and a relatively clear-eyed understanding that living fully and authentically as myself would invite torment and ridicule. So I buried that attraction as deeply as I could, convinced that if I could lie to myself well enough, perhaps I could deceive the world as well. The problem with crafting a prison within your own shame, however, is that it's a terrifyingly precarious construction. I was habitually afraid that by the slightest slip, I would reveal my bisexuality to others with a clarity I wasn't even ready to offer myself. I remember in seventh grade being asked to look at my nails. When I stretched out my hand in front of me, fingers spread, the act was met with snickering from boys in my class who scoffed and told me that was the gay way to look at one's fingers. While other kids might have been able to easily shrug off that kind of ridiculous sophomoric joke, for me, it ignited full-blown panic. Surely this would be the moment that everyone would know and not only would they mock me, but I'd have to be honest with myself as well. Frankly, I don't know which I feared more. Crying had been so thoroughly associated with homosexuality in men that it was an early victim in this self-directed purge. Granted, it's a roundabout association because clearly there's nothing intrinsically gay about crying. But tears are linked to weakness in the canon of toxic masculinity. It's a worldview that's still deeply influenced by patriarchal notions of a hierarchy within genders, one that men break if we submit ourselves to other men. This category crisis destabilizes the traditional hierarchy, threatening to pull the whole thing down. By extinguishing my own tears, Ben writes, I was unknowingly participating in that perverse order. I did not know the overarching history, but on an instinctual level, I had perceived enough to know that too much open crying might give away my most closely guarded secret. Crying is revelatory. It shows what lurks beneath the surface, and it's a threat to those who wish to keep things buried. And this 
is precisely why crying is actually an unequivocal strength in men or anyone else. Dangerous truths will be set free, but revealing them requires courage. Queerness not only destabilizes ancient social orders designed to cage and imprison, it builds new structures of belonging that prioritize emotional authenticity. Emotional authenticity. That's what we heard in today's scripture reading. I confess that like every other preacher I've ever known, I have never read Psalm 137 in its entirety out loud in worship. I have always stopped well before verse 9, that line that sucks out all of the air from the room and makes everyone wonder why we read the Bible at all. To be fair, the preceding verses seem like enough to get the point across. The psalmist is in deep lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. The Babylonian army had just sacked the city of Jerusalem and the remaining citizens are being marched into forced exile. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion, the narrator says. On the willows there we hung our harps for there our captors asked us for songs. These are the harrowing words of someone from whom everything has been stolen, someone with a future that promises only more desolation. And then there are those last lines, happy shall they be who pay back you what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. The anger is too stark and unsettling most of the time. It's sorrow stripped of any facade or pretense. It is just sheer rage towards oppressive power. To what can we compare this to that would make it real? Like Ben, I am too young to remember the AIDS crisis, but the stories I've heard, the retellings in books like David Francis' How to Survive a Plague, they are as visceral as the psalm. As Ben writes, it's easy to forget just how cavalier folks like Ronald Reagan were about mass death once they discovered who was dying. Indeed, when the Reagan White House was first asked about AIDS, the immediate reaction was to joke about it. Journalist Lester Kinsolving asked Press Secretary Larry Speaks, does the president have any reaction to the announcement by the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in over 600 cases? When Speaks confessed to knowing nothing about it, kinsolving followed up. Over a third of them have died. It's known as the gay plague. The response was overwhelming laughter in the press pool and an incredulous speaks. 
There's been no personal experience here, Larry, he responded. I don't have it, do you? It took Ronald Reagan another three full years and thousands of deaths before he even mentioned AIDS for the first time. In response to years and years of being simultaneously persecuted and abandoned by the government, family, friends, and churches, the gay community gathered its raw grief and rage and transformed it into prophetic action. On October 11, 1992, some 8,000 people staged a political funeral in Washington, D.C., in which they carried the ashes of their loved ones who had died from AIDS and scattered them on the White House lawn to indicate, to indict the administration that sat and watched them die. But in addition to publicly mourning their lost loved ones, those in the crowd had to be alert to how police officers might interfere, groaning beneath the weight of both harrowing sorrow and state repression. But that raw emotion is what set the actions apart. For it is one thing to say, you killed my friend, and it is another to dump all that you have left of that friend at the feet of the powerful. At the time when politician ca politicians cast so much shame and stigma on the dying, anguished howls split the silence, saying, this is not our shame, it is yours. These kinds of political funerals became repeated protest tactics. Like all powerful social actions, they were successful in part because activists forced the system to reveal its inhumanity. It forced us to recognize tears. Queer activism also galvanized a broader coalition with other folks suffering and dying from AIDS and the people who loved them. Joyce Rivera is the founder and CEO of the St. Anne's Corner for Harm Reduction, a nonprofit organization that provides health resources to drug users. She initially got involved in this work after her brother died from injection-related HIV in 1987. Remembering those early days, she says that there were very few resources for folks who contracted HIV from intravenous drug use. But drug users, their loved ones, and advocates, and then gay members of ACT UP were able to create a bridge, she says, which helped develop greater solidarity and it was very important leveraging policy to provide access to syringes for people who inject drugs. Like so many, Rivera's personal grief both fueled her work and connected her to others in the struggle. When her brother died, the pain made her double over. I was drowning in a river of tears, she said. She didn't just let that grief stay in her body, though. I was so angry and so upset. I was prepared to violate every law there was, she recalls. And I did. I'm very proud I did. I and others, we changed the world. Now, however, she thinks that it's too easy to say that grief simply transitioned into anger. I used to say that anger and rage drove me, but now, now I understand that Love and loss are intertwined, 
I was angry because I missed him, angry because he was no longer here. As gay public health advocate Donald Grove put it, we were supposed to channel our grief into rage and rage into action. But it was the activist community that created a world where I could feel enough to cry. Anger by itself is not sustainable. Crying helps our grief and anger form a compound emotion. Private tears and public rage both testify to an ability to stay fully present in the face of overwhelming pain. But there are other dimensions to LGBTQIA crying too, like joy and gratitude. Joy and gratitude in the triumph of living when the world promised you would not. This is what is already happening downtown, what has been happening all month. As, as we gather on this final weekend of pride, people are lining the streets, music blaring, rainbow outfits sparkling, spirits shining, ready to kick off the pride parade, ready to celebrate, ready to be seen, ready to keep hope alive, ready to be authentic physically, spiritually, emotionally. If you have never been to a pride parade, there are a few things you should know. It involves some discomfort, and not because you're going to get glitter in your eyes, but you surely will. <laughs> no, you will find that in about 30 minutes, your face will begin to hurt from smiling so much. The Pride Parade has that effect on people. It's the dancing, the music, the beauty of a community that is beloved. The joy is contagious. Your face cannot help but be the happiest it has ever been. You will also feel a lump in your throat and your chest may tighten and you may find that your eyes are brimming with tears. The Pride Parade also has that effect on people. It's the history that it started as a riot for the right to be, to exist, to take up space, to hold hands in public and kiss your beloved without fear. The tears come from knowing that our trans kids are more vulnerable than not. So they need us to be so, so very clear that we believe they are fearfully and wonderfully made. The tears come from knowing that the Pride Parade is an invitation, an invitation to, as the poet Lucille Clifton wrote, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. So after we sing our final hymn and we go with a word of blessing so that we can leave this place and join our youth group at the Pride Parade, be sure to take some tissues. You're going to need them. Amen.
You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.